So, May, I was thinking that for the last episode of this season, we should talk about something uplifting and inspiring and kind of leave everyone with this really good feeling about the future. I think we should talk about the end of the world. Or that. Hello, and welcome to Science Brunch, last episode of season two. I'm Katie McKissick, a.k.a. Beatrice the Biologist. Oh, and I'm May Prince. <laughs> Sorry. That, that was my cue to jump in. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Welcome to Science Brunch, you guys. Oh my goodness. It's going to be a long episode. It's going to be great. <laughs> I can already tell. Today we're talking about, who are we talking about, May? We're talking about Robert Oppenheimer. Ah, I know that name. Yes. But before we talk about Rob. Yeah. Bob, what, what, what do you have to tell me today? Well, I want to talk about these uh, footprints in Tanzania. Hmm? Okay. <laughs> they are 3.7 million years old. They're like really old footprints. Oh. Did you hear about these? No. Okay, so so here's the scoop. 3.7 million years ago in Africa, there lived a, a hominin, hominin, not hominid, sorry, hominin, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, a, an old relative of ours, Australopithecus afarensis. Have you oh. heard of it before? No. Have you heard of Lucy? Yes. Yes. Lucy is an Australopithecus afarensis. This is why we, we call share, her Lucy. Yeah. <laughs> we share a common ancestor. So that okay. this is kind of going into the evolution of humans, you know. Mm. So uh, so this species, it went extinct about 2 million years ago. We shared a common ancestor. They, they're kind of ape-like, kind of human-looking, walked mm-hmm. on two feet most of the time, looks like. A Lucy is the most complete skeleton we've found. And, uh, they, and there are these footprints of, of, made from the same species that were preserved really well because they were they walked through ash um, from a volcano that was kind of wet and so it really was like cement so as they walked through it these footprints were preserved really well and we've we've found these footprints before um but uh they just found some more and we're looking at the sizes of the of the of the footprints and they were deducing how big the individuals would have been that made them right so these new footprints they found uh, evidence of a male and two females it looks like and the dude the dude australopithecus afarensis is a big guy really (laughs) so he he is the biggest uh, of that species that we have evidence of we don't have his bones but we have footprints so he would have been about five and a half feet tall which for that species is really tall because huh. <laughs> they were a lot smaller than than modern humans so he was yeah about five and a half feet tall or i think that's 1.65 meters mm-hmm. and weighed about 105 pounds oh which, wow. uh, let me let me translate that for our european listeners uh 48 kilograms hmm. yeah 1.65 meters so, and his nickname, just like Lucy has her nickname, is Chewy, <laughs> named after Chewbacca because Chewbacca is so tall. Nice. <laughs> and um, these footprints are kind of interesting because based on the fact that it looks like it's a dude and two ladies, they're like, oh, this means that um, similar to gorillas, you know, one dude has multiple quote unquote wives. It's like, ugh, would we title. have assumed this if we I know, had found I know. one one lady with I mean, two dudes? How do we know that they don't just think of him as a friend? <laughs> exactly, or one of them's his sister. Yeah, we don't know. Exactly, they could just be friends, <laughs> or there could be like a dominatrix thing happening. We don't know. Or they're a family. Yeah, maybe that he was just following them around, and they thought he was really annoying. Yeah, they're like, who is this creepy yeah, or, what tall if, or, guy? Yeah, or what if they were siblings or something? Yeah. Hmm. You know, or maybe it was a, a mother and father and a girl, baby, or, you know, you know, adolescent. Yeah. 
So scientists are deducing what the relationship could have been. But yeah, that's a lot where people go first is, oh, it's it's a guy and his two lovers or something. <laughs> but, you know, just as many people are saying, oh, OK, let's let's take that with a grain of salt. It could, there, are, of course, could be other situations. Yeah. There. But um, but they are always trying to figure out what the reproductive sort of insinuations are based on things like that. So that's their minds are just always in the gutter. These people <laughs> just God. It's like, hey, look, These footprints scientists. of different individuals. How might they have been having sex? Let's discuss this. <laughs> you guys, calm down. <laughs> They're just, just at a party. They didn't know each other. Take it easy. <laughs> God. Oh, and just a reminder, we have a baby here with us today. Yeah. She's, she makes noises. She's still here. <laughs> what? She's what? getting to the point where she's like, you guys aren't the only ones who can talk. I'm going to talk too. So you'll hear her occasionally. Yeah, a little bit. So tell me about Opie. Yeah. So Robert Oppenheimer, his name probably sounds familiar to you. Um, he was born Julius Robert Oppenheimer, April 22nd, 1904 in New York City. Oh, I guess we're going to get into the 30s again. We are. Oh, Spoiler alert. <laughs> World War II is imminent. Um, but he grew up in Manhattan. He was actually, his father was a self-made man and pretty wealthy. So he was one of these uh, rich scientists we hear oh, occasionally those. about. Yes. Um, his family was uh, non-practicing Ashkenazi Jews, and his father was a German immigrant, but his mother had been um, part of a New York family for generations. And um, he was pretty smart. He went to high school. He was a valedictorian. He graduated in 1921. He was off on his way to college. But first, he came out with a near-fatal bout of dysentery. Oh, that's that's no fun. In order to recover, they actually sent him to New Mexico, where he, like, hung out and rode horses all day. And, I mean, I wish this were my way of recovering. this is money. Oh, are you not feeling well? We're going to send you to New Mexico. Yeah, he, like, stayed at a dude ranch, and then he went to Hartford. (laughs) What? (laughs) That's just just normal life, you guys. I don't know. Um, So he did that, and uh, he got his BA from there in 19... 1925. So he like, he was sick the summer of 1922, went to college that fall and finished his BA in three years because why not? You know, well, New Mexico had just rejuvenated him so much. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and he like studied tons of stuff. He studied like math and science, philosophy, Eastern religion, French and English literature. Uh, but he majored in chemistry. So he was interested in lots of stuff, but he actually became super interested in thermodynamics as one does. Just, I think he took a class and he was like, whoa. This well, he is, liked explosions. This is what's That's for what that me. Means. <laughs> yeah. And um, after graduating, he actually went to work in a laboratory at Cambridge University as a research assistant and found out he hates lab work. Oh, <laughs> he doesn't want to do that. And he wasn't very good at it anyway. And so he decided to go to grad school. You know, when you don't know what to do, you go to grad school. Yes, that's true. Yeah. So but he, grad school usually involves lab work, so this could be difficult I know, for I know, <laughs> but it's okay. So in 1927, he graduated from the University of Göttingen in Germany. Is this the same university? Oh my university? goodness gracious. Is it the same university as Emmy Noter? Yeah. Yeah, so he graduated in 1927. So she was there oh at that time, gosh, I think. Oh my gosh, you guys. There was a lot of overlap, by the way, of scientists the world during is really this small. era. Yeah, because it's very small, and it got smaller, especially after, you know... The Nazis started pushing everyone smaller, out, but it felt right. it smelt it felt smaller. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> 
the um, world shrank. So yeah, so blame Emmy. at this time, you know, he studied with Max Born and Niels Bohr and European physicists were developing the theory of quantum mechanics. Like physics was really, really taking off at this point. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> she is so excited so about excited. physics. <laughs> So then after he gets his PhD, he goes to be a professor of physics at not one, but two universities. How is that possible? He went back and forth between uh, UC Berkeley and Caltech. Oh my gosh. That's quite a drive. You guys, that's like six hours. I know, I know. <laughs> and like, while he was there, he actually predicted, he wrote a paper in 1930 predicting the existence of the positron, which is antimatter. Oh. And while he was there, Carl Anderson at Caltech discovered the positron and that discovery won him the 1936 Nobel Prize in Physics. This is Carl Anderson, not Oppenheimer, at age 31. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> so they were just, you know, handing out Nobels like candy back then for all these, <laughs> these discoveries in physics. One for um, you and one for you. Yeah, but he didn't actually, uh, Robert himself didn't have any patience for writing scientific papers really or doing long calculations he kind of like lost track in the middle and he wasn't very good at those calculations because of that huh. he's like i'm he an ideas guy. more of an ideas guy exactly and he like actually uh was able to influence a lot of people around him just in conversation and just discussing ideas so he was a good influencer so he's a sounding board yes and, okay yeah and a good ideas man a good thinker can we say he's a disruptor or is that too silicon valley <laughs> It might be too Silicon Valley. I mean, he's, he's near there, so... Yeah. Mm. But he also was not... He wasn't perfect. He suffered from depressive episodes. He, like... There were some instances of his family and friends, like, trying to help him out. And there were a couple incidents that kind of signaled that he wasn't quite stable. So, like, in college, he apparently poisoned an apple for his tutor and the oh. guy didn't end up eating it but it was kind of like oh, oh. red flag you guys and i think yeah. his parents had to intervene with the university and be like no please don't sometimes being out. a genius is rough and there are side effects <laughs> yeah i mean he he sounded like he was a bit unstable and maybe a bit of a spoiled jerk just because of his okay. background um yeah there was another instance where his friend told him oh i got engaged and then robert tried to strangle him <laughs> so hmm. yeah all these were kind of like uh, he might not be the best people person. So we're not inviting him to brunch, is what you're saying? I mean, we'll, we'll see. I think I think he matured. I think I think he he got past the strangling and the poisoning. But yeah, if he if he gives you an so. apple, do um, not eat it. Um, so he's definitely not preparing brunch for us. Right. Don't leave him alone exactly. with your food. Don't leave him alone with the eggs. Oh my god. <laughs> so 1937, you know, he's in his early 30s. His father dies, but this leaves him a wealthy man. And he actually ends up supporting a lot of organizations um, later on. But in 1940, he marries Catherine uh, Harrison. She was born in Germany. She was a trained botanist. And she'd actually been married three times before. Uh, once was an annulment. Once was a divorce. And once was a death. Her husband, her former husband, had been uh, fighting with the communist forces in the Spanish Civil War. <laughs> and she was actually still married when she met Robert. So that was a bit of a scandal, mm. but especially yeah, at the time it's like, whoa. yes, at the time it was very, I mean, she was only, let's see, she was only 30 at this point and she'd already had three husbands. So yeah, scandal, scandal at the time. Uh, but he was kind of a wild child too. So it was fine. Like worked out. Totally. Um, they ended up having two kids, one pretty much right away. Peter was born in California in 1941 and that was in May. So that was just a couple months before the bombing of Pearl Harbor, just mm. to give some historical context to this. Um, and then 
it's already going on at this point, but World War II. And then <laughs> our favorite recurring character. Yeah, World War II. Rears its ugly head. So Robert had never really been interested in politics. He kind of just was, you know, stuck in books, stuck in science, yeah, like, hanging out. Yeah. Uh, but then Adolf Hitler rose to power in 1936, and he was like, oh, maybe I should start paying attention a little bit. This This is not good. And then, of course, there's all these scientists fleeing Germany after the 1939 Nazi invasion of Poland. And, you know, they're being pushed out. They were already put on lists like um, Emmy Noether was and mm -hmm. saying Jews can't teach, women can't teach. Everyone was just fleeing, trying to get out. And, of course, the United States was among one of the countries that was just snatching them up because this was like incredible talent just being flushed out. And that's how we got, you know, Albert Einstein and all sorts of good people. So yeah, we were just like catching them as they were just falling. Exactly. The as they were fleeing Germany, we're like, come <laughs> here. And they came to a lot of uh, American universities and lectured and stuff. So that was good for us, I guess, but terrible for them. So in 1939, Niels Bohr actually reported that the Germans had split the atom and the U.S. government started getting really nervous about the prospect of Germany developing an atomic bomb before the U.S. or the Allies did. And so they put together the Manhattan Project. And it was a military program to develop the U.S. atomic bomb, the first atomic bomb, to develop it first so that, you know, we would be ahead of Germany. Yeah. So. Oh, man. Nerve-wracking. Yeah, I can't, I can't even imagine. Yeah. So Robert, who had been tinkering around with the process to separate uranium-235 uh, from natural uranium, which would be used in an atomic bomb, they were like, okay, you sound good. You be the director of the Manhattan Project. I think the guy who hired him kind of overlooked all of these other, you know, personality so, quirks. So tell me more about this poison apple situation yeah. before I hire you. <laughs> but I think he chose him because, you know, Robert was brilliant and he was a good influencer. Like he knew how to bring people together and talk to people and all of that. And so we put him in charge, and it involved several laboratories. So one was at the University of Chicago, one was in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and one was in Los Alamos, New Mexico. And Los we know, Alamos... We know how much he loves New Mexico. Exactly. And he actually showed the general in charge of the project the site where it was eventually placed. And the site was called Trinity, the Trinity site. So he oversaw the construction of the lab. He recruited all of the best minds in physics that he could find, some of them accepted, some of them declined. Some of them didn't want to be involved in a, in a project to build a giant bomb. Yeah. Um, but a lot of them did accept because this was an opportunity to be on the very cutting edge of science. They were basically given free reign to develop any way they wanted, all the money and resources that they would need. And it was a very tempting prospect because they were helping their country and also doing cutting-edge science that no one in the history of the world had ever done before, and they were developing something completely new. And, you know, also fighting the Nazis. So it seemed like a plus. They all lived in this small town in the middle of the desert. They were guarded by military, but there wasn't really anyone coming in. Yeah. <laughs> they were just all out there. a pretty good vantage point. It's like, yep, there's still just dirt but and cacti. they all had their families with them because, you know, they're living out there full time. They can walk to their lab, which is like, you know, half a mile away or whatever. Good commute. Got and it. his uh, his second child was actually born there. Catherine, uh, she was called Tony, was born on December 7th, 1944. And that was three years after the, the bombing of Pearl Harbor for context. So they were there for a while. Um, 
I'm interested in her nickname being Tony. That's not usually a shorthand of Catherine, since I'm a Catherine. Yeah. I would know. I'm not sure exactly why either. <laughs> Maybe it's her middle name or something. <laughs> and uh, interesting fact, she suffered from polio as a child. Uh-huh. She got it at age seven, because uh-huh. that was 1951, just a couple years shy of Jonas Salk developing the vaccine for polio. So Again, it was not that long ago. It was not that, that long ago. You had to live ago. in terror that your children would wake up paralyzed. Exactly. Oof. But no, she was fine. You. She recovered. Well, that's good. Um, so the Manhattan Project. So this is a sensitive issue because it's one of those instances where science was advanced by leaps and bounds in a very short period, and it ended up being used to kill people. Yeah. And whether you believe in the justification of that or not, the fact is thousands and thousands and thousands of people died because of the work of scientists who were just interested in advancing the science. Yeah. This is why there's also science ethics. <laughs> exactly. And we'll get into that. Oh, oh, good. oh, okay. <laughs> so some historical context, May 8th, 1945, Germany surrenders to the allies. But at that point, Japan does not. They are like, we will never surrender. We will keep fighting. And so the Manhattan Project is still a go. Like they still have, they're not, they're no longer going to have to use the bomb for the Nazis against the Nazis. They would have to use it against Japan, possibly. So they keep developing. And just a couple months after Germany surrenders, they do the first nuclear explosion test at the Trinity site. And this is a big deal because it is the very first um, atomic explosion, man made atomic explosion. And it was overseen by Robert Oppenheimer. And this is that video that we've all seen. There are many videos. I can't remember if it, if that particular test was taped. I, I'm sure it was. Um, but they all, you know, kind of dug a trench in the desert. And I think they dropped it from a suspension system in the desert and watched the test. And mm-hmm. if you have read anything about nuclear blasts, they are so bright that you can cover your eyes and be in a trench and put your arm over your head and still see blinding white light. Oh like, God, it's that's, so horrifying. That's the power of this kind of explosion. Ugh, I wonder if anyone peed themselves. They may have all a little. So, I mean, Robert was nervous going in because obviously he was in charge of this project. Like he'd been working towards this for several years. My eyes are just like, just saucers right now. I know, just, I know. Ah, and they were, it. they all went out to the site to see the test And, you know, he was nervous going up to it, and then it detonated just the way that they thought. And he was cheerful after that. Like, he was happy because, I mean, this was a scientific accomplishment. He made a really big poison apple. Yeah, (laughs) he did. But, I mean, it was a huge accomplishment. This is exactly what they had been working for 24-7 for the past couple years. And everyone was relieved because they had finally, finally succeeded. Um But he said later uh, in an interview um, about 20 years later, he said at the time, you know, they were they were happy. But he claims that he also had kind of the beginnings of second thoughts. Mm. So the famous quote and there's a, a videotaped interview of him. We can tweet it. But he says, we knew the world would not be the same. A few people laughed. A few people cried. Most people were silent. I remember the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu was trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him, takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. So I have goosebumps, you guys. Yeah. So that is the famous quote. So now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Terrifying. Yeah. So that is in July, 1945. 
in just a few weeks, the U.S. government, and the scientists knew that this is what it would be used for, the U.S. government dropped the little boy on Hiroshima on August 6, 1945. And it was about 140 pounds of highly enriched uranium-235. The bomb itself was about 9,700 pounds, which is a lot. Mm, yeah. And it was done with a simple gun-type mechanism. So it was just kind of smashing um, radioactive material into each other to mm. create fission. Like a and little to, bullet just inside of it? It's like one part, when, it, when the bomb drops, it drops one part of it onto another and just that compression kind of sets off the explosion and this is the enola gay the that yes one? this okay. is the enola gay that drops little boy and that's on hiroshima and it killed forty-five thousand people instantly and another nineteen thousand via radiation poisoning over the next four months so at that point they knew what the u.s knew what had happened because they recorded it they could you know survey the city afterwards it took Japan until the end of that day to figure out what had even happened. Oh because, again, this was an unprecedented scientific achievement, and people had been working towards the bomb. But even the scientists, after doing their tests in the desert, did not know what would happen. Like, they thought they knew, and then surveying the damage and hearing the reports out of it, they were shocked. They were shocked at the destruction. Yeah, I can't even imagine what must have been going through their heads. And, yeah. oh, that's the thing that we just worked on and they used it and, um, okay. Uh... So that was August 6th yeah. and Japan refused to surrender. And so the U.S. dropped a second bomb, this one on Nagasaki called Fat Man. And that was three days later. And at that point, Japan surrendered. Um, they surrendered uh, just six days later. The Japanese emperor announced unconditionally that he, they would surrender. But it was with that second bomb that a lot of the scientists at Manhattan Project were very disturbed. Because to them, it was a short amount of time to drop two of those bombs, and they didn't think that it was necessary. They were also disturbed by the fact that these were dropped on civilian populations, not military targets. Yeah, I never actually read about why or how they chose the, the places to do that. Yeah, and I think that's a whole other thing. I think the interesting thing about it is that up until this point, uh, Robert in particular and other scientists, their justification was, we are just the science. So we will do all of the science that we can to support this mission, but we are not the politicians. We are not the ones deciding where the bomb is actually dropped. And so they felt kind of removed from responsibility in that way. Well, that's how you sleep at night, of exactly, course. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, it's not, you can, there are many ways to disagree with that. <laughs> right, but especially after the second bomb was dropped, that one killed at least 80,000 people. They started thinking, what have we done? What is our role in this morally? Mm -hmm. Not just like, is doing the best science that we can do uh, morally excusable um, based on the results? So after that, Oppenheimer kind of became much more interested in not using nuclear weapons right. and started advocating for arms control. So... We'll get into that in a little bit. There, after that as well, in December, when all the reports started coming back and they started actually getting on-the-ground reports about what the effects were, uh, a group from the Manhattan Project at the University of Chicago formed the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which is a magazine devoted to warning the world of the dangers of nuclear weapons. And they still exist, and they are the ones that have the doomsday clock. Midnight on that clock represents 
destruction of the human race by nuclear war. Oh, okay. Oh, that. Yeah. Yes. And then they just, they set the, the minute arm a couple minutes before midnight to show how close they think we are to annihilating ourselves with nuclear weapons. And FYI, just so you know, <laughs> in 2015, they moved it up to three minutes to midnight. And one of the reasons, well, I'll just read their justification. They say, Unchecked climate change, global nuclear weapons modernizations, and outsized nuclear weapons arsenals pose extraordinary and undeniable threats to the continued existence of humanity, and world leaders have failed to act with the speed or the scale required to protect citizens from potential catastrophe. These failures of political leadership endanger every person on Earth. I like the analogy I've, I've read that when, when all these different world leaders are talking about nuclear weapons mm -hmm. and when people do threaten to launch them... It's like we're all standing in three feet of oil and they're, and they're arguing about who should light a match. Yep. It's like, you realize that being first is not going to somehow remove you from this. I mean, we're, we'll just, we're all going to go down. Exactly. This and is not, yeah. This was the beginning of mutually assured destruction, you know, that whole theory. Because in 1949, way before the U.S. thought they would, the Soviets conducted their first nuclear test. So now it was suddenly an arms race. We were not in quote unquote control or had the upper hand for a very long. The Soviets raced to catch up with us. Right. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Exactly. You can try though. We play pretty messy. And so at this point they start discussing, oh, how do we build bigger and more strategic nuclear weapons? <sighs> you know, in order to be able to fight the Soviets who now have nuclear weapons. And at, during the Manhattan Project, there was a scientist named Edward Teller, and he was very interested in the hydrogen bomb. And it's like basically, it was basically an enormous, you know, super mega atomic bomb uh, on the scale kind of of what we have today with our nuclear weapons arsenals. And Oppenheimer was not interested in that. He was like, he didn't think that strategic weapons were the way to go. Strategic weapons are basically weapons large enough to destroy entire cities. Um, and they are used as a deterrent to say, hey, don't do this or we will annihilate your capital. Um, and Oppenheimer was more in favor of tactical weapons, which he theorized could be used on military targets. So as opposed to bombing an entire city, a smaller tactical weapon could be used to bomb a military base, for example. At least that was his thinking. Uh, but this development, I mean, all of the politics shifted to how do we build the biggest, hugest oh, arsenal God. of giant bombs yeah. so that we can deter any action or aggression by the Soviet Union? I wonder how he explained all this to his kids as they were growing up. Yeah, I don't know. And some of... And I say that only because explaining things to kids makes you really step back. And that, yeah. that, that's the only reason I say it. I mean... Well, he probably didn't have time to explain it to anyone <laughs> while he was doing it because he was just working 24-7. Right, right. Um, but one of the scientists, the scientist Edward Teller, who, was in, who really wanted to push for these huge strategic weapons, um, he became known as the father of the hydrogen bomb, whereas, you know, uh, Oppenheimer is known as the father of the, the atomic bomb. Uh, Teller is considered one of the inspirations for the character of Dr. Strangelove. Oh. So he was kind of, he used the momentum from the Manhattan Project to keep on pushing the boundary of physics for nuclear weapons development. So he didn't pause to think, oh. Should we? Should we? <laughs> he was like, let us keep going. Let He's us go as Jeff far Goldblum as we can. talking about <laughs> yeah. Jurassic Park. Exactly. Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Exactly. And this was the exact problem that Robert struggled with because he knew now 
that science for science's sake was not necessarily always good Mm -hmm. if it happened to kill lots of people, for example. So he started wrestling with that. And that made him very unpopular with the U.S. government because, you know, the rhetoric at the time was we need to go bigger and better. And Oppenheimer was the one pumping the brakes, being like, maybe we should think about this, you guys. Maybe we shouldn't develop bigger weapons. Maybe this isn't the way to go. Well, actually. Yeah. So after World War II, the government set up the Atomic Energy Commission, which replaced the Manhattan Project. And Robert became chairman of the General Advisory Commission for the AEC. And it was then, you know, it was during that time that he was lobbying for international arms control because he was was like, yeah, we can't do this. We're going to destroy everyone. Um, But that made him a lot of political enemies. So actually, at that time in the 50s, his his loyalty to the United States started coming into question Uh because this was the era of the Red Scare and McCarthyism. And a lot of people started questioning, like, he has communist sympathies. He's always had communist friends. His wife used to be married to a communist fighter. Like, and his brother was also, I think, a member of the Communist Party, although he never was himself a card-carrying member of the Communist Party, which you could be a card Like There were literally cards. Like, Here's your card. Sign up. <laughs> um, but his left-wing sympathies and his sympathy to communist goals made him suspect. And they called into question his security clearance, and they started working, his enemies started working to revoke it. And he actually had um, a hearing. He, he, he was subjected to a security investigation. And this made him kind of famous as either a traitor or, you know. Or the guy who's trying to help protect us. <laughs> right, exactly. And he knew that he was in trouble. He hired a well-known lawyer. And that lawyer ended up working for him pro bono. And he faced 24 charges. And these were all charges about his donations to the Spanish, you know, Republican war effort, his relationship with communists, like the list goes on and on and on, including his, uh, his marriage to his, to his wife and his lawyers. The the problem was his lawyers didn't have a security clearance or the security clearance that they needed in order to review all the evidence. And so they couldn't even take a look at everything that was being used against him in the hearing. Well, that doesn't seem very fair. It doesn't seem very fair. And he was reluctant to share information with, to, you know, with them because he was like, a lot of what I did was classified and I don't want to accidentally reveal something to you. And so his hands were tied too. On top of that, the team had wiretapped Robert and his defense team. And they had... <laughs> 273 wiretapped reports of his conversations just with whoever, but also his conversations with his lawyers. And they used these reports during the hearing to, you know, chip away at his whatever credibility um, problem they thought he had. So he was on trial basically for 27 hours over several days, just testifying and answering questions. And Ed Teller, you know, the hydrogen bomb gung-ho guy yeah, like let's make bigger bombs exactly he was the only scientist to testify against robert and as a result this is the only silver lining he was ostracized and shunned by all these other scientists yeah man what a weird because they were like what are you doing yeah like robert is awesome his his loyalty to the united states was never in question he has left wing tendencies so do we all. <laughs> yeah, and, don't be a jerk. Yeah. And so obviously, I mean, this was kind of 
Teller's revenge in a way. Like he was like, oh, you didn't like my hydrogen oh. bomb idea. So I'm going to destroy your entire life. Tit for tat. Oh my God, you guys. That is the definition of petty. But but, yes. I, but I especially like the, you didn't like my bomb. So Exactly. Exactly. So 1954, he was denied his security clearance and he lost his position with the AEC as a result because obviously he couldn't continue on with the government if he didn't have a clearance. And it was basically a political lynching because he lost his clearance less than 24 hours before his contract was up and set to expire. So this was a very symbolic, hey, screw you. If you're not with us, you are totally against us and there's no middle ground and we cannot question why nice. we're doing this. Ugh. So, yeah. But his concern about nuclear arms and you know pr proliferation did not end there. And he was concerned with the general public's lack of scientific understanding and the difficulty oh. in explaining scientific concepts to them. Oh, I'm, I'm glad we saw that since then, though. Yeah. So he started <laughs> delivering lectures. I think there's a series on the BBC. Um, they were published under the title Science and the Common Understanding. And in those, he kind of he tries to, you know, explain to people kind of science and in a moral light in a bit. Especially because, yeah, you're not going to be able to understand all this stuff about these bombs if you don't if you don't know more about how they work and how they could how what they're working on and how much yeah. worse it can get. Oh. And then in 1960, he also helped found the World Academy of Arts and Sciences, and that was made up of distinguished individuals concerned by the impact of the explosive growth of knowledge. Its activities seek to address global issues related to the social consequences and political implications of knowledge. So obviously, he was still obsessed with this question. Is science always good on its own? Is it an absolute good? Or do you have to look at it in terms of, you know, moral context? Yeah, I wonder how much he was just kind of personally torturing himself for for having worked on it. Or, you know, if, if he if he would go back in time, if he would make a different decision, or if he thinks at first it was good. Like, oh, yeah, it was okay yeah. that we developed it to say, hey, don't mess with us. We could do this to you. But maybe he just was like, oh, but they actually used it, and oh, they're making a big... Oh. I, w I wonder when it tipped for him. Because yeah. obviously it was okay at first. I mean, mm -hmm. he signed up for it. He mm -hmm. completely knew what he was doing. It's not like... I mean, I'm sure there could be some situation where a scientist is working on something in uh, some small piece of something that could be used that way, but that they never even thought about yeah. or something. Um, but that was you know pretty upfront about what they were doing. But yeah, I wonder when it tipped. I mean... It was very soon after the reports came in that he it like really hit him. I think it's one of those things where you spend so much time like preparing for an exam, for example, right. or just looking you're at studying, the minutia. studying, studying, yeah. And then you take the exam, and it's not until like the day later where you're like, oh, I'm done, and you suddenly are able to see the world <laughs> that you had ignored for so long. And I have to imagine that it was like that for him that he couldn't afford to look up and around at any point. Like right. he he had a goal that he was working towards because he thought. The annihilation of the country was what he was preventing, what right. he was working to prevent. And he met with uh, President Truman, who was responsible for dropping the bombs on Japan. Um, he, he met with him after the bombings to basically tell him, hey, I'm not sure this is a good idea. Like, we should really ramp back and try to stuff the genie back in the bottle a bit. And Truman was so upset. You know, I mean, this began the whole kind of backlash against Robert and saying, like, if if you're not with us, you're against us, yeah. and we we can't afford to look at it any other way. So do you think he probably thought that they were just going to do a demonstration of the bomb and say, "Hey, Japan, watch out! Look what we can do," and not actually use it on to kill anybody? Just show that they could, and that's how it would have solved things. I think he knew kind of um, technically what would happen, 
but it was really the result of like actually seeing the results yeah. and then seeing them just very quickly drop the second bomb gotcha. where he was like, oh, are we not thinking about this as long as maybe we should be before we kill thousands of people all at once? So that's what really got him thinking. Um, in 1962, the U.S. government finally made some amends um, for the way that they had treated him. And President Kennedy invited him to the White House uh, and he awarded him... Uh, the Fermi Award, which is the highest honor given by the AEC, the commission that he had been kicked out of <laughs> during the hearings. Well, that's, um, some, that's some justice there, I guess. Yeah. It's like, we recognize you. <laughs> you did this for us. Thank you. And Robert was nominated for the Nobel Prize for physics three times, but he never won. So that's another interesting thing. Like he was responsible for one of the most, mon you know, the most monumental shift in military <laughs> technology. And uh, he didn't get any recognition for it. Like, again, at a time where they're just, I mean, they're not handing them out like candy, but anyway, like lots of people, lots of people in his circle were getting them. Lots of people that he was acquainted with. So in 1967, in February, he passes away from throat cancer. And this may have been because he smoked like a chimney. Um, Could be. Yeah. Good theory. And we'll there are it. many, many things named after him. Uh, including Oppenheimer Beach, which is in St. John in the U.S. Virgin Islands. He, um, I think they had a family home there ever since his daughter had gotten sick from polio, and they went there to help her recover when she was about seven years old. So um, his wife had a private ceremony, and then she scattered his ashes on that beach. That's and that's, nice. that's why it's known as Oppenheimer Beach. Um, another thing that was named for him was the son of, a 19, of the 1939 Nobel Prize winner, and founder of Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, Ernest Lawrence. <laughs> he named his son Robert because he and Robert Oppenheimer were best friends at UC Berkeley. That's so cool. that's yeah. not a bad legacy. At yeah, least totally. if someone names your, their kid after you, you can't be all bad. Um, that's a rule. It's a rule. But yeah, so it was really interesting to read about him. And it was very interesting to read about the context of, you know, how much do you have to consider the impact that your work even if it's pure science, is going to have on the rest of the world. And uh, he really, yeah, he struggled with that question. And It is a big question. I mean, it really is. I mean, how, to what extent are you responsible for what happens with things that you develop? Mm -hmm. and, and I'm not sure that he, I don't think he had any regrets about developing the bomb and even how it was used initially. Um, but he was very interested in exploring if it should ever be used. If it, sh you know, I think he probably he probably thought it was justified at that time, uh, but any future use he was very against. Yeah, me too. I I agree with him yeah. there. I mean, at this point, <laughs> at this point, I find it very interesting. The whole idea of nuclear deterrence is that you have nuclear weapons and I have nuclear weapons, and that's why we won't fire at each other because if I fire one. You're yeah. just going to retaliate, and then we'll both be dead. Like, yeah. that's mutually assured destruction. But to me at this point in history, I'm kind of wondering about if the moral weight of that decision has become so great that if you fire a nuclear weapon at me, am I really going to respond with a nuclear weapon? If I don't, the entire system falls apart. Because the whole point of mutually assured destruction is that it's mutually assured destruction. Yeah. And that's what keeps anyone from pushing that button. Um, but at this point, I'm just not sure that you know, we would. I, I, I kind of hope that we wouldn't because I don't see the outcome being better. Yeah. Honestly. Like, is destroying everything better than only destroying one thing? Yeah, is military decision by spite a good way to go? Exactly. Exactly. So, 
yeah, it was it was heavy stuff. And I know it's heavy stuff for the last episode. Yeah, geez. But, Let's just end on the destruction of the entire world as we know it. But I, I did think it was interesting in our current political context, which is there's been a lot of loosey-goosey talk about why don't we use nuclear weapons? Oh man. Oh, let's 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 talk about that. Let- <laughs> there are a lot of reasons. <laughs> there are a lot of reasons, and you know, not the least of which is the two examples that we have in Japan, and they are still suffering from the effects of that. Like right. not just physically, but psychologically. Like can you I can't even imagine. Yeah, I don't even know why why the, the U.S. and Japan are on speaking terms. I mean, right. It was not that long ago. I mean, here in the U.S., we're very, we play pretty loosey-goosey with our history. We just, yeah. we just kind of just discard it. Oh, let's just forget about that. Let's pretend it didn't happen. Let's have, I mean, even when there are still people alive that live through it, let's just erase it from our cultural memory and just move on. Like it, we can learn nothing from it somehow. It's so strange. And I think that's kind of an outcropping of being a young country. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, yeah, we just don't have that respect for the really deep roots, or we don't have the deep roots that other countries do. Japan does. Mm-hmm. And history, I think, is treated very differently there. So something that's so recent, I can't believe that it has been, that it's healed as much as it has. I'm not yeah. saying it's completely healed, but I, if I had, you know, relatives, or, you know, if I had, if that was only one generation away from me, I would not be able to think about that country the same way. Yeah. For, you know, I, so I don't know how. And, and why, why yeah. have we forgotten yeah. stuff from World War II? It know. was not that long ago. There are still people yeah. that are very much alive who fought in that war, yeah, who remember that war. And there are all these elements coming out now, you know, regarding nuclear weapons and internment camps and registries for professors, all of these things are cropping up. And as I was, you know, reading about Oppenheimer, they were cropping up in my mind. And it was really scary to think, you know, no matter how much, I mean, that was one of the most recorded events in all of history, World War II was. And a lot of it was because of the documentation that the Nazis kept. And yet we have still managed to forget extremely important elements of it. And that to me is very disturbing. It's like we're refusing to learn the lessons from it or just yeah. we're determined to forget them and say, well, maybe it really wasn't that bad. I if mean, we manage about... to forget the lessons of World War II, that is on us. Yeah. There yeah. is no excuse. It's not like, oh, the records were lost and they burned the fire. No. Yeah. There is I mean, right <laughs> there. plenty of memory and record yeah. and there's no excuse. So let's all keep our eyes open for stuff like that and be like Robert Oppenheimer and question. Yeah. What Science the heck will is save going us on. if it doesn't destroy us first. So that's exactly good. <laughs> we we have to we have to shepherd science in a way that will save us and not destroy us. And that's why we need people that are scientifically literate and comfortable talking about science that are not going to just say, "Oh, I don't get it," so I'm going to just kind of look the other way because I'm I'm not qualified to discuss it. I mean, no, we need everybody to be on board. We need everybody to to be listening and paying attention and understanding so that we don't make a huge, huge mistake. So it's up to you listeners. Thank you. Thank you for listening. <laughs> and that's the end of season two. <laughs> but seriously, everyone should should look into it. I, I think this is the perfect week to do it. And uh, we just have to do our best. Look, the best chance we have is for aliens to show up <laughs> and so that we have them as an enemy and all of us you know, rally together and all, all the, all these, these national borders, all the countries is like, we're all the same country now because it's us versus aliens. We're all one people, you guys. And then, let's get on the same and then side. we'll win and then triumph. And then we'll forget the lessons of the alien war and history will repeat itself. That is probably true. So 
damn it. <laughs> so thank you so much for listening to the last episode of season two on Science Brunch. And now you all have your marching orders for saving the world. So it's really great. So that's what you can work on while we're <laughs> working on season three. Yes. So we will be off for the month of February preparing season three for you. And uh, we will be back in March. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe and follow and like and subscribe to our newsletter on our website, sciencebrunch.org. And we'll let you know what's going on as soon as we figure it out. <laughs> and save the world. Yay! The end. <laughs>